book of Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas have just gotten to the city of Iconium. Iconium. And that's where they went after all that happened in chapter 13, which we studied last week, uh, when they were driven out of not only this town of Pisidian Antioch, but out of the whole region. And they go down to this town southeast of Pisidian Antioch called Iconium. Iconium still exists today. In fact, it's a very thriving city called Konya, Turkey. It's a city of about a million people. We have a picture of it that you can see uh, of what Iconium looks like today. It's a, it's a significant city. So they went to this town, Iconium, and there they started to minister. Now, um, in Acts 14, it didn't look like that, obviously. It was a much smaller city, but it was still very important. So Paul and Barnabas go there. And as usual, they go to the synagogue because that's where they always started. They started by going to the Jews and giving the gospel in church um, because that was the logical place. So we've got a little bit of setting. We'll develop that in in a couple minutes. But uh, let's just start reading the text as we're going to kind of attack the whole chapter today. So let's take it in chunks, starting chapter 14, verse 1. Thank you for bringing your Bibles and turning. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands." The people of the city, verse 4, were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, let's stop there, and we'll come back to the next section in a couple minutes. Notice in verse 1, that as they preach the gospel, that both the Jews and the Gentiles believe. Now, that's important to, to, to catch that because that meant that the message of the gospel went outside the synagogue because the Gentiles were not allowed into the synagogue. And the text doesn't mention that Paul and Barnabas went out into the streets, that they found an open-air plaza and set up and started to preach the gospel and all the crowds came around. So, so there's a very real possibility that the Jews who are hearing the word in the synagogue and who are having their hearts turned toward Christ were then taking the message to the Gentiles. Now that's very remarkable if that's what happens in the text. And we don't know because of an absence of information, but, but that's a natural assumption coming out of the text. And that would be remarkable even in a Gentile city that the Jews then would go to, to the people they considered their enemies and they would take a message that contradicted in some ways Judaism and, and, and evangelize. But that's the power of the gospel and that's what's happening all throughout Acts is the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles is starting to break down and the gospel now is going into all the hearts. But notice, as we're used to by now, there's still opposition. And we see what's becoming a very familiar phrase in verse 2 where the text says, but the Jews. Now we see this a lot because all except for two times in the book of Acts, every act of opposition 
that is against the apostles or against Paul or against the gospel in some way, every time but two in the book of Acts is precipitated by the Jews. They were relentless in their opposition to the gospel because they did not want to believe. And that's the only way we can view it in terms of the opposition to the gospel. They simply did not want to believe. You know, we need to understand, and we've seen this, I'm sure, in our own lives and as we've talked to people about the gospel, that the gospel always has a polarizing effect. It always separates people in terms of how they react to it. That's why there's been such a tendency, even among Christians, to shy away from the message of the gospel. Because we get worried that we'll be seen as too judgmental if we present the whole gospel. The whole gospel does include the fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The whole gospel does include that the wages of sin is death. But the whole gospel also includes that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. We have to present all of it. We have to say man is stuck in sin. Man is under bondage to sin. And there's nobody exempt of it. We have to say that our works, our good deeds, will never get us even in the remotest possibility anywhere close to the perfection of God. We have to say that because that's the only way that Christ dying on the cross makes sense. And we can't stop at all men are sinners. We have to go to the fact that Jesus Christ did intervene, that he took our place, that he took the sacrifice upon himself, and that he died. And then we have to go to the next step of fact, that he did rise again, and that he will deliver those who trust in him. What people are reacting against in terms of the gospel is not our judgment. It is the weight of their own sin. And we absolutely have to be careful with how we communicate the gospel so that we aren't setting ourselves up as a judge and jury because not one of us has that authority. Not one of us has the right in sharing the gospel to say, you're a sinner and I'm not because I'm just as much of a sinner as you are and you're as much as I am. We're all condemned. And yet, Christ comes and he delivers. Never forget, church, that gospel means good news. Good news. Christ died to deliver us. And while we have to be upfront about sin, our focus must always be on Christ. Jesus Christ, he is the gospel. He is the essence of the gospel. Now, as we share that, I want you to notice in the text that it has two effects on those who hear it. The first one is in verse 1. The first effect of the gospel is that many people will believe. Now, I want to say this because this is obvious, but I think sometimes we forget it as believers. We have to believe the fact that when we share the gospel, people will believe. We have to trust the Holy Spirit to empower us and to convict hearts and to draw people toward God's forgiveness. Because when we stop trusting in the power of the gospel alone to save, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. We can't stop trusting in that reality. That the gospel does have power to save. And when we stop trusting in the Holy Spirit to do His work 
In other words, when we think the gospel isn't enough, we have to add something to it to draw people in. And when we say the Holy Spirit, we, we can't really, we don't really know, it's kind of weird, and, and we can't really trust Him to, to draw people in. We're going to have to create some, some clever kind of man-made techniques to assist Him. When we get into that, we get into trouble. We need to do nothing, hear me, we need to do nothing to draw people to the Lord other than preach the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit. That will draw people to the Lord. That's what we see all throughout Acts. The power of the Acts narrative is that every time they share the gospel boldly, hundreds and thousands of people get saved. One-on-one conversations in the desert, big open-air meetings, small group meetings, whatever it is, no matter what the setting, when the gospel goes out, people get saved. So when we speak the gospel, people will respond. But there's a second reaction, and this is in verse 2. Many will also reject the gospel. The reason they will reject it, according to the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 2, is that they will disbelieve. It's a great word in that verse, and the Holy Spirit uses it intentionally. The word there literally means to refuse to be persuaded. Many disbelieved the gospel. Many set themselves up against the gospel. They intentioned in their heart, I will reject this. I will refuse this. I will not allow this to infiltrate my heart and mind, and I will not be persuaded. Many people this morning have taken that stance. It's a familiar response that we see in our culture, and it will only become more and more prevalent in these last days. So as we teach the gospel, some will respond, and some will say, nope, not even going to entertain that. Now, look at the characteristics of how that opposition plays out because knowing how the enemy is going to fight us helps us to recognize and withstand it. First of all, I want you to see that it starts with the mind of the crowd being stirred up. The word there means to excite against. In other words, to get the crowd going. And it says that their minds were stirred up. The battle always starts in the mind. It always starts in how we think and how we feel. And the devil wants to do everything he can to incite the mind of every single person, whether you're a believer this morning or not. His job is to incite your mind to be as self-oriented as possible in how you think and how you feel. And the two go together. So how does he do this? He tries to portray God as harsh and restrictive and unfair. That's how we think. Okay, he says to you, he tries to reason with you, God is not fair, God is restrictive, God is harsh, God doesn't want you to be happy, God God is against what you want. And then he goes into how we feel. God wants to deprive you. You're not going to get what you really want. Boy, how could he be like that? How How could God love you if he doesn't want you to be happy? And he exploits anything that will incline us toward that. And in doing that, as he lies and lies and lies and lies and lies, he's trying to get us against the Lord. So it always starts with the mind. And then look at the second thing. He stirs up the people to be embittered against the believers. Notice the use of the words the Holy Spirit puts there. 
He doesn't say that he embittered them against Jesus Christ. It says that he embittered them against those who believe in Christ. Like we've done something wrong for putting our confidence in the one who saved us. Like we've done something wrong for wanting to tell people about the good news that's transformed our lives forever. That, that that's a bad thing. Now this is a very subtle tactic that he uses, but it has unusually effective results. He tries to divert people away from the one that they need to focus on, Christ himself, and he tries to make us the point of conflict so people can blame us rather than dealing with their separation from God. Look at the reactions to Christianity in our culture. The media and the opponents of our faith don't directly argue against the whole teaching of Christ. Think about this. They take one part of Christ's teaching, his love, and they say, well, that's everything that Christ was about. So if it doesn't match his love, and you can take nine different tangents off of that in terms of how that's interpreted. If it doesn't match his love, if everything that Christians are about doesn't, doesn't fit with just loving people and loving people and loving people and loving people, especially those who are disenfranchised, then it doesn't work. Of course, they completely ignore his teaching about sin and pride and the fallacy of trusting in ourselves and the need for repentance. They ignore the reason that Christ went to the cross. They ignore the meaning of a sacrifice. They ignore the resurrection. And they ignore the commission that he left to his disciples. And because they do that, the attack then goes on us. We're then set up as the ones who have adopted this, this part of biblical teaching that, uh, of, of, of judgment and of sin and of the need for repentance. And now we're viewed as having a personal agenda of judgmentalism against the culture. Because they only want to say Jesus was about love. And look at you Christians. You guys aren't about love. You want to restrict everybody and tell everybody what they can and can't do and, and judge everybody. And that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to present the whole gospel. But the world doesn't recognize the whole gospel. It only recognizes what they want to recognize. And here's where it gets difficult. In our fear of getting labeled as an uncaring or accept, unaccepting or, or intolerant, we've backed off of the second side of Jesus' teaching in order to be accepted. The problem's as old as Acts 14. But I want you to notice the approach that the apostles take is not the same approach that we take now. Look at the next verse, verse 3. The Jews who disbelieved were stirred up in their minds and embittered against the brothers. Therefore, the apostles, notice this, spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance on the Lord. And the Lord himself was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. The second part of that phrase is speaking boldly in the Lord. You notice with reliance, if you've got an NASB, is in italics. The phrase in the Greek is speaking boldly in the Lord. It has the implication that they were both relying on the Spirit to give them strength and courage and also relying on the Spirit to give them the right words to say. And how many know that's the only way 
to share the word of God. The only way to share the word of God is to say, Lord, give me strength and courage because most of the people I talk to are not going to receive this. They're going to disbelieve. And Lord, as I talk, give me, I pray, the right words to say. Now we know, 2 Timothy says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that should not be ashamed. So that's a given. That's what's expected. That's not a goal. That's the reality. For every believer, we're to study the word and know the word and have confidence in the word and memorize the word and have the ability to speak about what it says. Even the apostles did that. That's why in Acts 6, they set them apart and say, you guys need to study and pray. They didn't just wing it. They didn't just say, well, all right, we're going to go out there and, and, and we're just going to, we're just going to let it go. Let's just, whatever we can say. No, they studied and they prayed and they prepared their hearts and minds so when the time came, they could speak the word. But notice here, there's an extra layer of empowering that comes from a complete reliance on the Spirit. They studied, they prayed, they prepared their hearts, and then they said, Lord, as you give us the opportunity, give us the words and give us the boldness to speak. Tell us what to say. How do we challenge? How do we exhort? How do we encourage? Whatever you want. And I want to tell you this morning, that was far more important than the fact that the Spirit gave them signs and wonders to do. The Word of God was central. And we have to look at the order that he lists that in because the extra gifts had no power or effect if the word wasn't correct. That would make them Elymas the magician. If you could do the wonders, but you didn't have the word to back it up. So as the enemy tries to distract the people away from Christ, look at what Paul and Barnabas do. They deflect it back toward Christ. They say he's the one who saves. He's the one who delivers people from the bondage of sin. They just keep talking about Christ. People are stirred up in their minds. People are reacting. They're turning away. They're disbelieving. They're fighting against it. People are frustrated. There's division. And Paul and Barnabas just keep saying, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about the gospel. Now, of course, the people are against that. And we see here from Acts 3 on that any time they spoke the gospel, there's going to be opposition. When we get to about Acts 6, Acts 7, Acts 8, it accelerates, and almost every time they speak, there's some sort of physical threat against them. And here we see in the text that the Jews and the Gentiles get together, and they plot to injure them, and they try to stone them. So Paul and Barnabas move on to the next three cities. If you would, guys, put up the map, please. Let's look at where they go next. They're going to go to uh, Lyconium, and they're going to go to Lystra, and they're going to go to Derby. So you can see that they're traveling toward the southeast, back kind of towards Cyprus. You get a good view of uh, the world at this time. It's an actual uh, aerial uh, satellite map. You can see where everything is. There's the original Antioch. You can see down toward Jerusalem, which will be at the bottom right of the screen. So you see where they are in modern-day Turkey. Now remember that, and we'll come back to the map in a little bit. Because I want you to see the distance that's being traveled. So they go down to these three cities. When they get to Lystra, something significant happens. Now it's typical of what we see 
earlier in the book of Acts, but the reaction to it is what we want to focus on this morning because it gives us a deeper understanding of what the Lord wants us, of how the Lord wants us to view our ministry and our use of spiritual gifts. And it also gives us an understanding of what should characterize our ministry. Let's start in verse 8. This is an interesting passage. Let's go verse 8 to verse 18 at this point. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you so that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who had made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Now, Lystrum, if you put up the next picture, please. Lystrum, Lystra was Timothy's hometown. Today, there's nothing in Lystra. Remember the picture we saw of Iconium, that it's this huge metropolis of a million people. Well, today, even though Lystra was an important city in the ancient world, now it's nothing but a field. There are some uh, relics and artifacts, some leftovers of the ancient city, but pretty much there's nothing there anymore. But while today it looks like that, at the time it was a significant city in Asia Minor. Not only because of what would happen to Paul in the last part of the chapter, which we'll read in a few moments, but because of what happens leading up to it. Now, the healing of a lame man is not unusual. In fact, if we look back at chapter 3, you don't have to turn, but if we look back at chapter 3, we know that almost the exact same thing happened when Paul and John, excuse me, when Peter and John were walking into the temple. So it wasn't unusual in the book of Acts for a lame person to be healed. In fact, at the time, that was the opportunity for Peter's second sermon, and the Sadducees got ticked off, and they threw Peter and John in jail, and it went on from there. But, but here, what's different is the reaction of the people, because it's nothing but positive. In fact, it's so positive, it's so overwhelming, that the people actually misinterpret what's going on, and they start to worship Paul and Barnabas as Greek gods. Now, I don't know if you've had a class in Greek mythology lately. My guess is probably none of you have. In the Greek culture, Zeus was the father of all gods, even though it was believed that Zeus had been born of two other gods and that he had overthrown his father to gain power. But Zeus was the, was the father of the gods. He was the god of the gods. And Hermes was his son. Hermes served as the messenger, the spokesman, 
for all the other gods. So that's why when we see the text, we say they started calling Paul Hermes because he was the spokesman. The people of Lystra are so convinced that these guys are gods that the priest of Zeus's temple actually comes out with gifts and sacrifices to offer to them. It's a fascinating scene. Because the priest doesn't even recognize that Zeus is not doing the miracle. This is the true and living God that's doing the miracle. And that shows, and this is so important, that, that the people were so hungry for authentic proof of the only authentic God that they're ready to worship once God's power is manifest. Even though they believed in false gods, the Greek gods, they had to know that those gods weren't real because they had never seen anything like this. And there's a very important spiritual principle here that we have to have in our minds every day because as we interact with people and develop relationships and continue uh, relationships that we have with co-workers and friends and families and neighbors, we have to understand one unassailable fact. People are hungry for authentic proof of the Lord. They are. They're hungry for it. And the enemies confuse their minds, and they will deny it when we ask them. But almost every person that we meet really does want to know that there's a living God. They really do want to know that there is a Lord of all who is worthy of worship and who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. How do I know that? I know that because every single person who is alive, including you and me, we've got to admit it this morning, we are all insecure, we are all unsure, we are all looking for answers, and we hope that somebody has them. And people want to have confidence and security not only in this life, but in eternal life. I am convinced of this. And if we look very critically at the state of the world this morning and what people are pursuing and fighting over and their agendas and how they spend their money, we will know that this is a fact. Everyone wants to have an answer and everyone wants to have hope. And when they see valid evidence of the presence and power of God, they will believe. That is why it is so vitally important that we hold strong convictions. That is why it is so vitally important that we live holy, set-apart lives that authenticate the transforming power of God. Those who don't know Christ will not learn from our lives if our lives look like theirs. And those who don't know Christ will not be convinced of different convictions if our convictions are no different from theirs. The Holy Spirit proves every day that Christ is real. He proves every day that Christ is the only way of salvation. But when people also see those of us who love Christ no longer controlled by sin and living by the word of God and walking by faith, there will be an undeniable confirmation that the Spirit's word is true. Because they're hearing so many voices and so much information that the voice of the Spirit is there, but it's another voice to them. And yet when they see set-apart believers who are living a holy life and loving God and walking by faith and loving other people and sharing the good news, all of a sudden they're going to hear His voice even more. 
Because nothing else speaks to the heart like the gospel. That's why miracles in Acts are de-emphasized. They're de-emphasized in comparison to the power of the gospel and the drastic change that takes place in the life of the apostles and the life of Paul. The miracles weren't what convinced people to trust in Christ. The word and transformed lives were. So let's not get caught up, oh, the lame guy walks and this is power. That's wonderful, but it was to communicate the word. Now that teaches us something about spiritual gifts and how we use them. And I pray the Lord will give us very strong clarity here that the spirit of God will speak now, not not me in any way. But there is something here about spiritual gifts and how we use them. We need to understand. Look back at verse 3. The Lord gave them the impetus to testify to his grace. The Lord gave them the ability to speak the word of God. And then afterwards, he granted them the ability in this situation to do signs and wonders. Now, the order of how that's listed in verse 3 is vitally important. Because the focus of their ministry was not their spiritual gifts. They were a vehicle for the time to talk about salvation through Christ. Paul emphasizes this again in the book of 1 Corinthians. Because in Corinth, they were so caught up in who had what gift and who was doing what and who was saying what that that they completely missed the focus of the gospel. And it's important to notice also in verse 4 that the gifts contributed to the division of people's attitude about the gospel. Gifts can do that. How we use them can do that. So we have to use them wisely. All spiritual gifts have to be used wisely. And they have to be used for the purpose of magnifying Christ and edifying the body. They are never, ever, 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 let me say it one more time, ever to be used to draw attention to ourselves. Ever. We know that's true. Because the scripture tells us it's true. And the supporting evidence is here in this passage. Because the gifts are what the crowd focuses on. And once Paul and Barnabas see this, they actually take the actions of people who are mourning. When people say, oh, look at what you've done, they say, and they start to rip their clothes. Sorry, coat. They start to rip their clothes and say, no, 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 stop. No, the focus is not on us. The focus is on the Lord. Oh, the gospel. No, stop doing this. The gospel, not us. Just as Jesus and the apostles had, Paul and Barnabas healed this crippled man. They see his faith. They heal him as a confirmation of his faith. And that ability seems very specific, hear me now, to the gospels and to Acts. Because from Romans and beyond, we really don't see it practiced. We rarely see it taught about, other than in James, where it says, if you desire to be healed, go to the leaders of the church in faith and ask for prayer. So the biblical evidence suggests that this is a very unique, not ceased, but it's a very unique gift from the Spirit, and current evidence suggests that it's very rare today. We've seen a lot of manipulation a lot of misrepresentation, a lot of deception by people who say that they have the gift to use it for profit or for fame. 
but very few examples in modern times of true healing. I heard a great preacher once say, if you really have the gift of healing, then go over to the hospital and walk the hallways and heal those people who need, who have faith. Now, why am I spending so much time on this? Why am I ever emphasizing this point? Well, it's important because what happens when Paul and Barnabas heal this man in verse 14 is very interesting. The crowd's reaction is to see them as gods. And Paul and Barnabas are very, very quick to deny that belief and to deflect everything away from themselves and toward the Lord. Notice that they say, we are just men like you. Believer, no matter what your spiritual gift is this morning, however you use it, never, ever, ever forget that statement. It doesn't matter what area of ministry you're involved in, whether you're preaching or teaching or or, or in preschool or nursery or kids or youth or running tech or ushering or or leading a Bible study or, or whatever. And I'm so grateful. Let me say this again. I'm so grateful for how many of you serve. It is a high percentage. We, we break the 2080 rule here, and I'm grateful. I'd love to see 100 zero personally. That's just my goal. Every person serving in some way. So I commend you for your service, but whatever you're doing, make sure at all times, every moment, every second, that it is all for the Lord and that He gets all the credit for any ability or gifting or talent that you've been given to serve the body. Paul and Barnabas do an amazing thing here. They raise a man crippled from birth. The Spirit says three times he was crippled from birth, just so we get it. And they raise him up, and he jumps up and starts walking. Now, the people at that point, ah, the gods! It would be hard, I grant you. Not to want to soak that in just for a minute, right? That was cool. That guy's walking. That was us. I mean, the human heart is evil, right? Just for a moment, just to say, applause. It sounds good. We even get beaten and tortured and they're trying to stone us. Finally, somebody's clapping. Yes! But look at what they say. We preach the gospel for the sole purpose that you would turn from believing what is false to believe and worship the living God. We need to hear what he is saying because it's such a vital perspective for us to maintain. Every good and perfect gift, including spiritual ones, comes from where? Tell me. Above. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever I've done, I count as loss for the sake of Christ and in view of their surpassing knowledge of Christ. And I would add to it in view of the surpassing value that others would know Christ. All that I've accomplished means nothing. I'd use a stronger word, but it's a family crowd. It means nothing. It's rubbish. It's worthless if anybody looks at me and says, look at that guy. 
No, it is all for the surpassing value of knowing Christ and causing others to know Christ. We have to deflect everything from ourselves because holding on to it hinders people from seeing the Lord. That's why Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. He says, use your gifts wisely and humbly because even our gifts are useless if they are not controlled by love and sacrifice. So when the people come and they say, you guys are like Greek gods. The gods must have come down to be among us. They tear their robes and they say, we are in despair over the thought that you would see anyone other than Christ. But the enemy even fights that. Look at the last part of the chapter, verse 18. Even as they said these things, they, with difficulty they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around them, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went with Barnabas to Derby. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, notice the last part of verse 21, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they appointed elders or overseers for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. They passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. When they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. In other words, way back a couple chapters when they were sent from there. When they arrived in Antioch, gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Now, just... Two more minutes. Let's look at the end of this. Some of the crowd can't get past giving them credit. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is that the people react violently. The enemy hates it when we don't claim credit for ourselves. So he stirs people up from far away. Look at 19. The Jews from Antioch who were ticked off and the Jews from Iconian, who were ticked off, somehow come over to Lystra. This is without the aid of social networking or internet or cell phones or anything. They, they all gather in Lystra, and they persuade the crowd to stone Paul. Now, if you'd put up the map just for a second again, I want to show you the distance that they traveled to get back there. Whoop. There we go. Now, you can see, we'll stand in front of the speaker, you can see where Lystra is. So they came from Iconium, which wasn't far, but they also came all the way from Antioch. Now, that wasn't a split reaction, hey, let's grab a bus and hop over to Lystra because we hear Paul speaking because we saw it on Facebook. This took a long time. They either plotted this well ahead or they were following Paul and Barnabas around. Whatever it was, when the people from Iconium and the people from Antioch found each other in the crowd, they realized they had a common cause. They hated the gospel. They hated Paul and Barnabas. And look at the effort they make to keep up the fight. 
They incite the crowd. They create opposition. And then they physically attack Paul. And they stone him to the point that they're convinced he's dead. And they drag his body out of the city. Now, stoning is a horrible punishment. It means grabbing stones that are considered bigger than a rock, but are not big enough to kill you in one or two throws. In the seven countries of the world that still allows stoning as capital punishment, they bury you up to your chest in the ground, and then they throw big rocks at your head. It's a horrible, horrible way to die. And yet, it seems in this text that that this is probably more spontaneous. Maybe Paul was talking in the crowd and somebody got upset like they do even in the Middle East today and grabbed a big stone and threw it at him and it hit him and, and kind of knocked him down and then the crowd started to pick up other stones. I don't think they had time to bury him. I think this was just, let's get them. And they keep throwing stones and keep throwing rocks and eventually Paul's laying prone on the ground and they keep, I mean, imagine the scene. They keep throwing stones at his head. Uh, we were watching this morning, 20 years ago, the L.A. riots when Reginald Denny, you remember that? The trucker who was pulled out of his truck and they threw a brick against his head. You could just watch his, his life change in that moment. That's what they're doing again and again and again and again and again. And eventually, he's still. And the crowd cheers. He's dead. We got him. And they drag him out of the city and leave him there. The apostles come and stand around him. And what is unthinkable, what is evidence of the power of God happens. Not only does Paul revive. I mean, imagine if you got hit by a hundred stones. I mean, can you just imagine? He not only wakes up, he gets up, look at this, and goes back into the city. I don't know about you, but I'd be on the first camel out of town. But look at the boldness and the confidence of his faith. He and Barnabas, the next day, verse 20, go to Derby, and many trust in Christ. And then this is what really gets me. They go back to Lystra. And they go back to Iconium. And they go back to Antioch. And while they're there, they strengthen the believers and they encourage them in the faith. And they say, listen, what we're facing is part of our belief. This opposition, it's part of it. But don't stop. In fact, when they get to Antioch in verse 27, I'm done. They don't focus on the antagonism. Paul doesn't say, look at my scars. Can you believe what they did? We better start a movement to fight them. They they don't focus on the battle. What do they focus on? They praise the Lord. God has opened the door to the Gentiles. God, listen, the opposition, the scars, don't worry about it. Again, here's the main point of the morning. Everything they did deflected away from themselves and toward the Lord. That constant preoccupation on the goodness and provision and faithfulness of God is what encourages encourages us to endure this week. It's what gives us the strength to endure. As we remember the past work of the Lord, we praise Him for what He's doing now. 
and we anticipate by his promises and trust him with complete confidence of what he's going to do ahead. Nothing will empower your faith and your ministry and your boldness more than that. Not I, but you. I decrease, you increase. Lord, it's for your glory. Don't let anybody pay attention to me. Don't call us gods. I know what happened is amazing. But listen, it's only possible because of Christ. Don't tell us you're hearing our persuasive words. Not our persuasive words. It's the gospel. It's Christ. Always go back to Christ because he's the only one that gets credit. Let's close our eyes. Let me talk to you for a minute personally. I want to say again that I'm so grateful every day for the maturity and the humility and the attitude that I see in this congregation. I don't say that to build you up. I just say it because I'm so grateful and so proud of it. I'm grateful for how faithfully you serve. But we also have to constantly guard our hearts and our minds because if our motives are at all selfish and we draw attention to ourselves, we can actually hinder the word of the Lord. So let me ask you, you and me, we're friends. Is there anything in your life that you're holding on to or or maybe even taking pride in that you're convicted of this morning that you need to deflect back to the Lord? Maybe it's a spiritual gift. Maybe it's a work you've done. Maybe it's ministry you serve in. And and honestly, instead of being deeply humbled and grateful to be used to the Lord, you've frustrated more people don't notice you. I don't know if that describes anybody this morning. I hope it doesn't, but maybe it does. I don't know what it is you might be struggling with. Maybe nobody does, but the Lord gave us this word this morning, and all Scripture is given to correct and teach us. So it's got to apply to somebody. Our attitude is so key. Our understanding of the Lord's goodness and the Lord's power is so important to give us the right perspective about serving. So if the Lord this morning is calling you to deflect, to draw attention away from yourself and to give it to the only one who is worthy of it, I pray right now you'll go before the Lord and you'll say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Humble me. It doesn't surprise the Lord when we do this. It's human nature. And yet, we're not controlled by our human nature anymore. We're controlled by a spiritual nature. Lord, I pray you give us clarity this morning. I pray that people would not see us in any way. They would only see you. Lord, it is so vital that we be able to speak your gospel. It's so vital that our lives be set apart, not so people would see us or notice us, only that they would see your power that's taken place in our lives. So Lord, even if it's a sin that's preventing us from living a sanctified, set-apart life. Lord, I pray we would confess that right now. Bring it before you and ask you to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. Because when we confess, that's what you do. And Lord, that you would purify and cleanse our hearts and minds so that we would be faithful and righteous and ready at any opportunity to say, look at what the Lord has done. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for those that love you this morning. Do this work in our lives, we pray, and may our hearts be sincere as we bring it before you. And Lord, as we deflect, we pray that your name would be magnified and that people would respond to your grace and mercy and that hundreds, Lord, thousands would be saved. Not that anybody would notice this church, only that they would notice that people love you. We submit ourselves to you, Lord. We ask you to do this work in our lives. We will give you the glory as it happens. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.